Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On the program tonight, federal health officials release Ottawa's latest modeling on where the pandemic is headed. We'll look at the latest forecasts. Immigration Minister Marco Mendicino releases Ottawa's latest immigration targets and Canada has ground to make up because of the global pandemic. We'll talk to the minister. And our journalist panel will be in to discuss the Trudeau government's handling of the pandemic and its economic impacts. But we start tonight with the latest look at COVID-19 as the second wave of the pandemic takes hold across the country. Canada's top public health officials today released their latest modeling. Their data shows a growth in infections across the country and in growing num- and growing number of regions of the country. And infections are increasing among older Canadians. The latest forecast suggests that by November 8th, that's in about a week, Canada could see between 22 and 33,000 more cases and between 185 and 300 more deaths. Officials stress that the lower range of those numbers would be achieved if Canadians reduced their number of social contacts by 25%. The Prime Minister reinforced that message at today's briefing. Remember, this is temporary, but we have to get through it. We have to make sure that it's not just, okay, I'm going to hold down today and not, not see anyone or hold down today and tomorrow and this week. Uh, we have to continue to engage in these behaviors, even as it becomes frustrating. Now, we have so far been able to avoid uh, large-scale shutdowns, partially uh, because we now know much more about COVID-19. What the challenges are, where uh, the challenging locations are for greater spreads. Uh, We are now wearing masks much more than we did in the spring. We are now uh, able to download a free COVID alert app uh, that helps uh, reduce the numbers and the contacts. Uh, We are able uh, to do things now in a targeted way uh, that is uh, better able to prevent needing a very blunt instrument of a nationwide massive shutdown. Uh, But you're right, it takes time and we have to persevere. We have to know that we are going to get through this in the coming weeks and months, but it is going to take weeks and months and not just days. Well, joining me now to look at the federal government's latest modeling is Colin Furness. He is an infection control epidemiologist at the University of Toronto. Uh, First of all, Mr. Furness, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure, thanks. When you look at this latest federal modeling, what, um, what stands out for you the most? I guess I would say the news could be much worse. I think it was better than I was expecting. We know that all models are wrong, but some models are useful. And so I think what's useful here is that it's reassuring to us that interventions tend to be working. I think masks are working. People are being compliant, at least to a reasonable degree, and that uh, we, we seem to have things more or less stabilized, which is remarkable because the amount of COVID we have every day now, say in Ontario, is, is is unusual. COVID likes to spread like wildfire. So to have a stable situation tells me that we've got a handle on it. And I think that's that's a good thing. Okay, why, uh, at least in Ontario, how, why do we have a handle on it? Why is it stabilizing? Well, you know, I look around a lot. Um, I spend a lot of time observing and I'm seeing really good, let's say mask compliance at, I would say something like 90%. You don't need 100% of people. You just need most. You just need the vast majority. That seems to be holding. 
we don't know how many secret gatherings people are having. We don't know about parties. We don't know about religious groups. We don't know about what's going on underneath. That's obviously causing a lot of the new cases every day, but it's stable. That is to say that we're not seeing an unwinding in compliance. We're not seeing a rebellion and we're not seeing the spread like wildfire. That's really reassuring. However, because we're not necessarily testing as much as we should, we, we, we don't necessarily have a full picture. And so we just have to be careful. We just have to be careful about how we interpret this good news. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because we have seen for the last two weeks, uh, Ontario has been often at only half testing capacity. I do, I do, though, have to ask you about certain other parts of the country. When we look out west, for example, when I look at Manitoba and per capita and the kind of growth that we're seeing in Alberta and Manitoba, what do, you, are, do you have concerns when it comes to other parts of the country? I think, I think Manitoba and Alberta are going to be facing some severe challenges. They're getting cold weather now. Cold weather, to me, defines the second wave. The virus is way happier, way easier to spread, lives a lot longer, far more dangerous, really, in cold weather. And I think that's what's happening. So the kinds of precautions that worked well in the summer and that worked reasonably well in the early fall are probably aren't sufficient. I know Albertans aren't necessarily wearing masks. Um, I'm not sure what the policies are in Manitoba. I think there are masks in some regions, maybe not others. What we really need to do is say anywhere where you're seeing COVID growth, everyone's got to wear a mask when they're indoors with other people. That, that's got to be a baseline, and each province and each region needs to come to that conclusion. Yeah, because I was going to ask that. If we see those jurisdictions, we see jurisdictions in Alberta and Manitoba, Saskatchewan, where there is very fast growth, uh, but there's not mandatory. A lot of the measures that we're seeing in Ontario and Quebec, for example, uh, like mask wearing, it's not mandatory. It's, 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 you know, basically at your own discretion. Yeah, and so that's the problem. So where we're seeing a lot of growth, I think that's exactly the problem. When you make public health measures optional, you actually polarize the population. You have some people who jump on it and insist on it, and other people who feel a lot of room to say, no, this isn't me, I'm not going to do it. And then people solidify and dig in their heels. So when you then go to make it mandatory, you're going to have perhaps more pushback. So I wouldn't have done that as, a, as, a, as an optional thing. I would do it as mandatory. It's evidence-based. It is clear within Canada and globally, when everyone wears masks, when they are together, indoors, sharing air, COVID cases go down. And when we have super spreader events, the one thing they all have in common is no masks. Okay, I have to ask you something. Uh, in Ontario, because you started by re referencing Ontario, one of the l largest centres, um, we listened to their briefing yesterday. They gave their modelling yesterday. And one of, the, one of the senior officials there commented, in terms of death rates, we've seen very low death rates. But he pointed to the fact that in the last week in Ontario, they've seen more deaths in the last week than they've seen in the last two months. So there's a growth there. And once again, most of the deaths are in long-term care homes. What's your thoughts about both Ontario and the rest of Canada in terms of death rates? Back in the spring when we had no idea how to treat COVID, it was killing more people. For example, it was causing catastrophic blood clots and strokes, and we didn't know. We didn't notice. Now we have more effective ways of treating people. Just giving them blood thinner saves a lot of lives. But it also depends the population that the virus is moving through. It will kill a lot of people in long-term care homes. It won't kill nearly as many 20-somethings. As for the rise in deaths now, deaths always lag. So we've seen a jump over the last month or two. Now the deaths will start to rise, but it will always lag because people need to be sick and then severely sick and then terminally ill. That takes a while to unfold. Uh, in the uh, statistics, we saw the graph again uh, where the federal officials in their, their sort of 
prognosis and, and suggestions. They said if we cut our social contacts, if Canadians cut their social contacts by 25%, they, we will reduce, I mean, we will significantly reduce and flatten the curve. What does that mean? Because we've been having a big debate here in the office about what does that mean? Does that mean social contacts, just discretionary, your private get-togethers, your social get-togethers, or does that also mean, uh, or can it also involve shutdowns, like closing down restaurants and bars and, uh, and clubs and gyms and, uh, things like that there's a variety of ways that you can get to a drastic reduction in social contact and, and 25 percent is actually quite a lot one thing that's likely to not work is just to gently say to people try and hang out with fewer people we see in areas of the country where COVID is growing it's optional it's it's really optional measures that that aren't effective so we probably do need to issue some orders. We probably do need to make some regulations. Uh, that can be bubble size. It can be shrinking class sizes in schools. That's something I would certainly like to see. That would have a, a very big impact. Um, we may need to introduce rules in factories and other kinds of crowded workplace settings where maybe we have half shifts or other kinds of measures. And, and yes, we can do lockdowns. We can start to close businesses altogether. We can close public transit. There's a lot of things we could do. But I think what's important is that we try and do these things in a sustainable way. 25% drop in contact is a lot. That means more people working from home. I wouldn't like to see closing public transit. I wouldn't like to see closing businesses, but maybe finding ways in which shift work can be spread out, in which more people can be working from home, in which we can reconfigure how schools operate. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can achieve that, but I, I think there's gonna be a whole basket of interventions. I think it's gonna vary depending on region. And I think the most important thing is optional measures don't really achieve what you need. Is that because the sources of outbreak now, too, are also much more diversified? They showed a pie chart, and in the spring, it was just in several places. Now it's in many, many different places. Well, it is diversified because we've opened up the economy so much more and there is so much more contact. But that, that's just measured infection. And, you know, we, we need to think about COVID as like an iceberg. There's the part that we're measuring that we can see that's above the water, and there's a whole large part that isn't. And that's the part that actually we kind of just have to make assumptions about. And I think that's all that's always been that's always been there. That part under the water, that part of COVID that we can't see, that actually may be larger now than it was. And that can make prediction difficult and it can make, you know, trying to do targeted interventions difficult. Okay, Mr. Furness, I want to thank you very much for taking the time. Oh sure, my pleasure. Thanks. Ottawa today released Canada's new immigration targets and the government is pulling out all the stops to make up for lost ground. This spring, Immigration Minister Marco Mendicino announced that Ottawa was boosting Canada's immigration levels to accept a million new immigrants over three years. But that was before coronavirus. The pandemic has closed borders, shut down international travel and it's crippled economies, all of which has meant that Ottawa has not met this year's immigration targets. Today, Minister Mendicino announced his department will make up this year's shortfall by boosting targets by about 50,000 immigrants a year. I'm joined now by Immigration and Citizenship Minister Marco Mendicino. Minister, thanks for taking the time. Nice to see you, Martin. Okay, well, let's go over this. I mean, obviously, a lot of people shake their heads and they, when they conceive of a, an immigration system continuing to work during a pandemic. How short is the shortfall for this year? We were supposed to have something like, what, 341,000 immigrants this year. I've seen one estimate that it might be as low as 200,000 because of all of the conditions. Well, in spite of the fact that we actually have a very strong record in meeting our annual immigration targets, um, this year has been different. And that will come as no surprise to your viewers, Martin. 
there have been disruptions to our immigration system, but we're ramping back up now by adding resources, by leveraging technology, and by being as flexible with our policies as we can be. And that's why I'm confident about achieving the targets under this new plan, which we just tabled this morning for 2021. And it's so important because immigration has historically been a great driver of our economic strength and will continue to be going forward. And that has been particularly true over the last several months during the pandemic. Okay, I just want to get to uh, I want to get to the, the what's going to be going forward. But I mean, what were the biggest difficulties? I mean, I heard reports of closed offices abroad, closed offices here, having to go digital. Obviously, travel uh, was a major impediment. Uh, does that mean we're going to be less than say two hundred thousand, about one hundred forty thousand short? Well, with a once-in-a-century pandemic, our top priority is the health and safety of Canadians. So we did put into place travel restrictions to minimize the movement of people across borders. And yes, of course, we did take steps to ensure that the people that support the immigration system are also quarantining and isolating. But as I said, we're now getting back to business as usual. And not only that, we're even accelerating our ability to make up for lost time. And so that is what you will see in this plan. This plan is going to double down on our strategy to invest in our immigration system by digitally transforming it so that we can attract the best and the brightest. And by the way, Martin, this will be to meet the urgent needs of our economy, including in the healthcare sector, where our frontline workers have been working tirelessly and heroically, and immigrants are there to step up and to do the job to help treat uh, those and to give support to our seniors. Okay, let's look at that. Um, more than half of the people arriving and getting immigrant status over the next few years will be in the economic categories. So we're talking about entrepreneurs, we're talking about investors, we're talking about people with job skills and people who have received job offers. They're the economic category. But a lot of Canadians which would scratch their head and say, well, yeah, but we also have 700,000 Canadians who are without a job compared to before the pandemic. And the economy is running at a you know, significant significantly reduced pace, uh, can we integrate uh, that number of economic immigrants? Yes, we can do both. And we have had Canadians back through the pandemic by ensuring that they have access to the emergency response benefit, to the wage subsidy. And by the way, that emergency wage subsidy is being taken advantage of by many, many businesses. One in three businesses are owned by an immigrant and they employ over a quarter of a million people in Canada. Now, that is the singular most important part of this plan. It is to drive economic growth by growing our population, by attracting the best and the brightest, and, and we hope to continue doing that by achieving the goals that are set out in the plan that we table today. Now, I mentioned that you're going to make up for the shortfall by ramping up in the next three years and almost 50,000 more uh, in the, at least the next two years. Um, the, there also, though, must have been a backlog of people who have not been able to have their cases processed or not been able to arrive. Uh, do people in the backlog, on the human level, do people in the backlog maintain their priority? And have you asked for more resources to deal with that backlog? Yes, and of course, as I said, we are adding resources, we are leveraging technology, and we're being as flexible as we can be. But I just want to come back to your earlier question. There is another really important part to this, and that is that immigrants create jobs. Um, they create jobs by owning businesses and by creating opportunities for Canadians to, 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 to come back to work. And with the supports that we put into place with the pandemic, combined with the plan that we are putting forward today, our focus is on getting Canadians back to work on strengthening and accelerating our, our economic recovery, and as well by addressing the long-term demographic challenges that we as a country face. 
Martin, we are rapidly aging uh, as a workforce, and without immigration, our growth will be sluggish. And don't take it from me. Um, take it from the Royal Bank of Canada, who pointed out that because of these disruptions, we've seen slower growth. Our plan seeks to turn that corner and to get people to, to come in a safe and an orderly manner so that they can meet the most acute labor shortages in the most essential parts of our economy to respond to COVID-19. Okay, I'm going to ask something which is often a difficult subject, but there is internal polling. Even your own department had internal, internal polling showing that in tough times, people tend to be less receptive of the concept of immigration. Uh, a lot of people in these very difficult times that we're going to go through, this winter that we're going to go through, are going to look at the numbers and, 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 and have maybe a negative response to it and say, why are we bringing in all these people? I mean, I know you've made the argument, uh, the economic argument for it, but are you concerned about maybe a different social climate for it? I'm confident that the vast majority of Canadians believe in immigration, and that's because they can relate to it. Uh, they are our relatives, they are our neighbours, our friends, the, our co-workers. I mean, one of the things that I have been able to see firsthand in welcoming new Canadians uh, to the family of citizenship is just how hard people work. And the, the, the decency that I see in people who, once they have achieved that important milestone on their journey to becoming Canadian, is that instinct to give back. And so I, I believe that immigration not only uh, reflects uh, who we were historically, it reflects who we are today and who we want to be going forward. And that is part of the vision of today's plan. Last question, and this is on behalf of those applicants who've been already accepted. And this is, again, a very human, human level question. You say you're going to deal with a backlog. A lot of immigrant applicants have been accepted abroad, and they see their qualifying period, their, their documents uh, can expire. Are you making, taking measures to ensure that people who, because they can't travel, are still going to be in the queue and won't lose their ability to come to Canada? Yes, those are precisely the types of flexibilities that I've talked about introducing. Again, acknowledging that COVID-19 has disrupted uh, many of our operations. And in the case of those who are abroad, the visa application centers that they would typically uh, be able to go to to finalize their process before coming to Canada have been shut down by uh, the, the host countries from where they're coming. And so we have to work very closely with our partners abroad and we are finding ways to uh, mitigate against those disruptions. But today's plan is about ensuring that we accelerate our economic recovery. It's about creating jobs. It's about uh, attracting the best and the brightest. And we've seen that lesson learned time and time again uh, throughout our history. And we are going to uh, be able to, I think, continue and to extend that success going forward. Okay, Minister Manichino, I want to thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you for having me, Martin. Well, joining me now to look at the week in federal politics and the government's response to the coronavirus pandemic are two members of the Parliamentary Press Gallery. Tonda McCharles is a national political reporter for the Toronto Star, and Bob Fife is Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. Both of you, thanks for taking the time. Thanks Happy to be here. Martin. Okay, let's start with something. Uh, it's just because we're getting news of this today, and that is that there are some communications and there's some press releases from the provincial premiers who are clamoring at the... They are reminding uh, the prime minister of their desire and of his promise to have a meeting with regards to health care transfers. Uh, what do you make of that? Start with you, Bob. Well, uh, I'm a little uh, taken aback by this, if I may say so, because... The Prime Minister, since the pandemic, has been having almost weekly phone calls with the Premiers. It's not as if they haven't had an opportunity to be able to raise this issue with them. Uh, I think this has a lot to do with the economic statement coming up that is going to be there, uh, I'm assuming, mid to late November. 
and that the premiers are trying to put a little bit of pressure on the prime minister to put more money in the pot for health care. But it's not as if these guys have not been talking. They've been talking almost every week. Mm -hmm. Tata, you've, you've filed a lot of stories on, on provincial relations with the federal government. What do you make of it? Yeah, no, I think this is um, the premier's kind of rattling Trudeau's cage, like Bob says, in advance of an economic uh, update. However, look, they had agreed to have not just a, a, a one of those weekly calls where 13 of them kind of get 20 minutes or five minutes. Um, this is a full-on first minister's meeting sitting down focused solely on the subject of health care transfers. And the provinces contend that really the federal government has really dropped the ball on its ongoing sustaining funding for the health care system. And they want it, you know, they're jacked up to 30, some 35 percent of their funding. Right now, they, they claim it's, I think, around 22 or percent or something, uh, the federal transfer kicking into health care budgets. And that's the, ri the rising, biggest rising, fastest rising portion of their provincial budget. So uh, this is going to be a really contentious meeting when they have it. I'm just surprised they haven't actually come up with a date. So yeah. it was kind of a, yeah, it was a bit of a, you know, oh, dear, you know, politicians clutching their pearls and saying, oh, we don't have a date, you know. They're really pressing the bigger issue, and they and they want to they want to have a knockdown drag out with yeah. Trudeau. There was that commitment to the to a formal sit down meeting. Uh, I want to get to um, to the government's response as we're now fully into the second wave. I mean, the figures are coming in every day. We have a, a more and more poignant reminder that we are really now in the thick of the second wave for most of this country, aside from Atlantic Canada. Um, I'll start with you, uh, Bob. What do you think are the biggest priorities and biggest challenges uh, this week as as this starts to unfurl across the country? Well, I mean, one of the key things is uh, testing. Um, the government is is only right now, there, uh, there's only been a surge in contact t testing of about 1,000. They're promising 6,000, but experts are saying that we need to do about uh, 20 to 40,000 in the, um, as, as winter approaches. We also have to make sure, and this is absolutely crucial, that we have enough beds and availability in hospitals to be able to deal not only with potential surge in patients who are having to go in for uh, to the hospitals to save their lives, but to make sure that a whole lot of other people who need surgeries and other kinds of uh, medical emergencies are not left at home waiting. Uh, we know from the evidence that uh, in the last shutdown is that a lot of people died because they held off uh, from needed surgeries or other medical care uh, because of the pandemic. So there's a, this is a very serious health crisis facing the country, not only economically, but health-wise. And the, the provinces and the federal government need to very, work very cooperatively in working together to make sure that there is proper testing, contact tracing, and that the hospitals can handle what is expected to be over the next couple of months, a surge in people going to hospitals for not only flu, but for COVID. Okay, um, Tonda, I have to mention an article you wrote this week because it was very interesting because what you did was you got into a bit of the, the dynamic, the new dynamic in Ottawa with regards to the federal government response and how it's all playing out here in Ottawa. We saw the, saw the battle about the motion about healthcare information and disclosure of it, but you talked, you had an article which was about Patty Hyde, the health minister, it was called the disappearing minister. Uh, walk us through that. Well, look, I just was struck and I spoke to many people who have been at the senior levels of that department uh, for the past two decades and um, how this 
crisis it normally would pose a big challenge for any minister, given that provinces are responsible for the frontline delivery of health care. But, uh, you know, and what the role is of the federal government as a central coordinating agency in this thing. And all of them said to me that it, even in a crisis like this, where it falls to the provinces, that everybody's looking still for national leadership. And every one of them questioned what's going on, that there seems to be sort of a, a little bit of a, if you will, a, a lack of that. And, and what I, what I was struck by is that, look, I think actually Patty Hyde was a really capable person, but I think she's being drawn into some of the uh, traps that the opposition is setting for her. And it's actually not working out well for either her or the government. And I was struck by how she had gone away and disappeared for a big chunk of time. It's not just that she was upstaged by Trudeau and Freeland and their management of this, but she was... She was not seen, she was not present, she was not front and center with Dr. Tam to take the political questions. She gets very touchy, very sensitive. She's very partisan, um, and she should be, that's fine. But it, it, her responses in challenging, for example, reporters who questioned her reliance on Chinese data, uh, her, her response to her opposition critic, and she's now facing a, a newly emboldened opposition with a new leader in Erin O'Toole and a new critic in Michelle Rempel-Garner. And so she's responding in ways that actually aren't serving her or her government's cause very well. You know, to um, react uh, against the effort by the combined opposition to get to some of the answers and, and demand accountability and transparency in documents, you know, uh, to respond in the way she did, she didn't help their cause, you know. And in the end, actually, I don't know if there was going to be any way to negotiate themselves out of that one. But now they're facing this enormous probe by the health committee into every aspect of their mm -hmm. response. And, you know, uh, that's going to reveal some pretty interesting things, I think. Okay, uh, Bob, I want to turn to you for another aspect of it and another minister, and that is Christian Freeland. This, this week we saw her give a uh, sort of a keynote speech to a, a group in Toronto outlining what, she, what was billed as the government's response to the coronavirus, economic response to the coronavirus as a new finance minister. Um, what do you make of that? A lot of people were saying that they wanted more specifics, uh, and there's also reports that there's going to be uh, something like $20 billion more structural uh, permanent change in funding, increased funding uh, come the economic statement. What, what do you make of where she is going and what indication we're getting from Christian Freeland as finance minister and deputy prime minister of the economic response? Well, first of all, Martin, I, I just want to comment on Patty Hyde. I think she has been a weak minister and I think the government knows that she's been a weak minister. If you imagine if it had been Jane Philpott in that same role, I think it would be a completely different situation. And I think they need to think seriously about replacing her. As for Ms. Freeland, um, you know, we're not going to get a lot of specifics right now because she's going to be giving us more information when we get an economic statement and presumably a hell of a lot more when we get a budget. But uh, mm -hmm. what she said was, we basically, uh, we are going to keep spending and keep spending a lot of money. And you have to think about this when you consider the fact that we do need to make sure that we're not leaving people uh, without any kind of a safety net. We have to protect uh, businesses and people who lose their jobs. But um, we have to think about this in this sense. Canada is, of all the, uh, the International Monetary Fund, of all the uh, countries, Canada is the largest spender right now at about almost 20% of GDP. The United States is second at 18.7. Uh, Europe is about 
10.7. So we're spending a lot of money, and I think that uh, we need to ask ourselves as Canadians how that money should be spent. Did we need, for example, to spend $8 billion to provide students with money? Did we need to spend a billion dollars on we? I think there needs to be some serious questions about how our money is being allocated. Yes, we do have to, uh, and, and I don't think anybody disagrees with the fact that we do have to make sure that we provide support to the economy during this uh, COVID crisis, but business leaders themselves are questioning how the government is spending money. And Ms. Uh, Freeland's uh, solution so far it seems to be one of the prime minister's office, which is spend, spend, spend. Is that the right way? I don't think it is. You think we will get those more details, at least uh, beginning of details in the economic statement? Well, look, uh, I'm not sure get... what we're going to get in those yeah. economic statements. Okay. Tonda, last word? Uh, well, I think we'll get some more details, but we won't get, I think, what Bob is referring to, which is some kind of guardrail on the spending yeah. and something, a limit, a ceiling beyond which they won't go. I don't think we're going to see that. Okay. This, uh, something tells me this, that, that particular story is one that we will continue to pursue. I want to thank both of you. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, guys. Thanks Have for a good weekend. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. From all of us here at CPAC, thanks for watching.